Welcome to War of the Words. I'm your host, Wayne Besson. We begin the show today with me reflecting on my childhood in Texas and discussing the many ways fundamentalist Christians dominated every aspect of our lives. The right-wing coup of the Supreme Court has now elevated these backward elements of my youth as they seek to violently reclaim America and enforce their narrow worldview. Then we discuss Cassidy Hutchinson's damning January 6th testimony that shed more light on Trump's criminality. We end the show celebrating a Polish court that ruled so-called LGBT-free zones are unconstitutional. Thank you for joining me today. It's great spending time with you. Now kick back, relax, and enjoy the show. When I think back to my adolescent years in A-Leaf, Texas, I remember it as a relatively apolitical time. To this day, I couldn't tell you the political affiliation of a single friend from that period, not one. It was an era of relative innocence and friendships were based on personality, not politics. It's not that divisions weren't present in society, given that it was the heart of the Reagan era. However, it was the pre-dawn of a time when politics became all-consuming and degenerated into the existential tribal warfare we have today. The Republican coup of America's Supreme Court has forced me to revisit my youth. The seeming peace and stability was a mirage. It derived from the underlying dominance of white fundamentalist Christians who accepted us if we laughed at their cruel jokes and accepted their dominion over culture, media, family, government, and religion. We harmoniously existed in their world because we played by their rules. We had no choice. In the 1980s, America was painfully transforming into a more tolerant society. The ghoulish ghosts of the past were in retreat, but always lurking in the shadows. Looking back, I recall the students in my school who had Confederate flag belt buckles and worship guns. I thought they were odd with their peculiar Southern obsessions that were so outdated, but they weren't particularly threatening as mass school shootings weren't a thing yet. I remember Danny, an imposing tobacco-spitting redneck who wore black boots and an enormous cowboy hat who was a few grades ahead of me, a really large guy. And one day while I was playing basketball, he randomly approached me with a psychotic look and angrily inquired, hey, Jew, if Jesus Christ ain't the Son of God, who the hell is? I mean, I looked at him quizzically. What the hell do you say to that? <laughs> I recall times when Hispanic custodians would enter our school while students would yell racist epithets. You can imagine what they are. My mother worked as a speech therapist in the same school district and recalls proselytizing co-workers. They'd begin their cloying pitches by asking my mom, what church do you go to? And it was uh, unthinkable to them that one might follow a different religion or have no religious affiliation at all. They proselytized all the time and recruited for their churches. My mother also recalls a teacher in her school who was popular, who was fired for being gay. I think back to the time I was attending a Houston Rockets basketball game. During a timeout, the public address announcer read election results. He excitedly revealed that a gay rights referendum was crushed. The crowd wildly cheered as if our team had won the NBA championship. When Republicans pined for the good old days, that's the type of society in which they want us to return. Meanwhile, a popular church-going history teacher I had spoke of how he had driven through a gay neighborhood, crinkling his face in revulsion. He pantomimed how a loving gay couple he saw were touching each other's butts. 
He launched into a profane monologue, which he delivered to impressionable sixth graders of how disgusting these perverts were. So let's drop the conservative pretense that gay has only recently been discussed in schools. Right-wing teachers and students have been talking about gay and transgender people in the classroom for eternity. Today's odious don't say gay laws are passed specifically to stop positive discussions of sexual orientation or gender identity. If LGBTQ people are denigrated, their gag rules likely don't apply. Gender equality at the time of my matriculation in Texas was a work in progress, to say the least. The boys spent a good portion of their days devising ways to get laid. If a girl put out, she was reduced to a slut or a whore. The girls who adhered to strict sexual church standards were treated worse in some respects. They were reduced to prudes who were probably dykes. Damned if they did, damned if they didn't, the girls of that age just couldn't win. In high school, I played on a public school basketball team that coerced players into student-led worship. Our sectarian prayers always ended with the words, in Jesus' name we pray. The Jews and the Buddhists and atheists kept quiet, lest we be accused of upsetting team cohesion and unity. We had no choice but to accept the prayer because we needed to please the coach if he wanted to get off the bench to play. So we sat there quietly. The majority trampled our constitutional rights, and there's nothing we could do. That's just the way it was at the time. The acceleration of social change, as well as the formation of our current political battle lines we have today, took shape during my late teenage years. My political awakening came at the same time as my sexual awakening. As I contemplated dating, I was stunned to learn that the Supreme Court, in 1986's Bowers v. Hardwick decision, told me that I, as a gay person, wasn't allowed to have sex. What? This can't be happening in America, I thought. Well, it was. There was no rational or reasonable basis for Bowers, other than a few justices found the thought of gay people having sex yucky and against their religion. These supposedly thoughtful legal scholars breezily dismissed that my most basic human needs were an afterthought. They insouciantly decided that I was destined to spend decade after decade horny and lonely if I tried to find relief for their court-imposed despair. I chanced a humiliating arrest and a criminal record, which could have wrecked my life. Though legendary Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was talking about anti-abortion dictates, her words equally apply to sodomy laws when she said that such rulings reduced targeted Americans to, quote, less than a fully adult human responsible for her own choices. In 1991, I enrolled at the University of Florida in Gainesville. We were young and idealistic students who would no longer tolerate being second-class citizens or sitting quietly while conservatives blatantly lied about our lives. Our LGBTQ student group hosted panels in classrooms, and while our educational efforts changed hearts and minds, there was also a backlash from those who opposed change. It was during this period that I first heard the phrase politically correct. The conservative student newspaper signed that slogan, popularized by radio host Rush Limbaugh, almost exclusively to LGBTQ issues. It littered its pages with acrimonious stories of how conservatives were victims of speech police because they could no longer openly call us faggots. When we hear politically correct today, it encompasses broader issues and evokes images of liberal excess, some of which is true, if we're honest. However, we should never forget the vile origin of this canard. In college, I started going to gay bars. 
a few of which you had to cross busy streets to return to your car. On many occasions, people would throw bottles and yell homophobic epithets at customers as they scampered in fear across the asphalt to the safety of their automobiles. Sometimes people were harassed, intimidated, or beaten up. The hate-mongering was greatly exacerbated by AIDS hysteria that infected much of the nation at that time. Most of the time, we enjoyed ourselves going out, but there was always the possibility of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The prospect of being gay-bashed has never completely vanished, particularly for transgender Americans, but overall, the climate is much safer. Until now, with white supremacists invading Pride events and library readings with drag queens. In the early 1990s, the incipient, bubbling, belching wrath of today's right wing was initially exploited by no other than Newt Gingrich in his rise to Speaker of the House. Gingrich, a partisan reactionary who torched bipartisanship in Washington, channeled Southern rage against President Bill Clinton. Gingrich and his goons despised Clinton as a hippie, gay-loving race traitor. When Clinton was warmly referred to as the first black president for his friendly relations with African-Americans, these hicks seethed with volcanic fury. Gingrich was a force of pure, unadulterated evil who rode this wave of white resentment to political power. Later, the Tea Party channeled the noxious impulses that Gingrich started and took it to a new level. In the years since college, I dedicated myself to fighting for human rights. Astonishingly, we achieved monumental success that far exceeded our initial expectations. Support for marriage equality has reached a whopping 70%. Who'd have thunk? LGBTQ people serve openly in the military. Progress for racial minorities and women have also become a reality. A woman, Nancy Pelosi, is Speaker of the House. We accomplished the impossible, electing America's first black president. Amazing. However, when Barack Obama was elected, the number of right-wing hate groups skyrocketed, and a crusty old guard who ruled for centuries turned on our political system and soured on America. Though they still dressed in ostentatious flag drag and sang patriotic anthems, they no longer revered democracy. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful system when victory was all but guaranteed, but now that their antiquated views were unpopular, majority rule suddenly seemed like an impediment to power. Kentucky Republican Senator Mitch McConnell was an early adapter to the new political model. He came from a conservative southern state dominated by white Christians. Adept at reading the room, he declared his primary mission was making Obama a one-term president failed at achieving his goal. He was wildly successful at stacking the judiciary to ensure that an undemocratic white minority ruled the majority for decades. And that's where we're at now. McConnell's sinister plot to capture the judiciary, especially the Supreme Court, was a complete rupture of our system. His efforts came to fruition when he denied Barack Obama's Supreme Court pick, Merrick Garland, a fear hearing. McConnell's superficial rationale for rejecting Garland was that America should not seat a new Supreme Court justice in an election year. That, by the way, was invented out of whole cloth. It's never happened before. But then he shamelessly reversed his pious proclamations and spearheaded the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the high court only a few months before an election. McConnell's bad faith was so 
outrageously brazen and beyond the pale that it wrecked the institution almost beyond redemption. His appalling in-your-face hypocrisy and his full-fledged assault on democracy has taken America to the brink of collapse. The American people watch helplessly, churning with white-hot fury, while the court's religious fanatics ram their church rules down our throats. Undeterred by their unpopularity, this motley crew of crackpots masquerades as fair-minded judges. They're not. Sure, conservative members of the Supreme Court look the traditional part in their black robes, but this crazy cabal operates with zero moral authority. It's devoid of truth, absent of trust, lacking in credibility, and is grossly out of step with public opinion. Their preordained, agenda-driven, inspired opinions aren't worth the cheap paper that they are written on. Make no mistake, the court is bucking public opinion and not representative of America. According to a CBS News YouGov poll taken after the abortion ruling, 59% of Americans and 67% of women disapprove of it. They don't care. The 10 states in which public opinion polls show a majority of respondents oppose abortion rights have about 11% of the U.S. population. The Los Angeles Times report, quote, abortion rights are favored by more than 50% of adults, even in most states that are rushing to put the court's ruling into effect by banning or heavily restricting abortion. Again, they don't care. It's a rogue Supreme Court. The Ku Court's reactionary rules and dictatorial diatribes, thinly disguised as legal opinions, are not to be blindly followed, but deliberately breached and aggressively circumvented for example, red states should be flooded with abortion pills. Blue states should harshly punish anyone as stalkers who cross state lines to investigate women receiving abortions. Corporations in forced birth states must relocate to civilized states. In fact, this phenomenon is already happening. Louis Fanon, the co-founder and CEO of the popular foreign language app Duolingo tweeted, quote, to all Pennsylvania politicians, I love that Duolingo is headquartered in Pittsburgh and that y'all use it as an example that successful tech companies can start here. If PA makes abortion illegal, we won't be able to attract talent and we'll have to grow our offices elsewhere. That's a pattern you're going to continuously see. Businesses are going to decide that they can't operate in these backward uh, Gilead-like states that have gays and women as second-class citizens. Who the hell is going to want a worker who's smart? The wicked wind of this tainted Supreme Court blew into town, descending like a biblical plague over a beloved country. We knew this day of reckoning was coming. Yet, when the nimbus cloud of sickening self-righteousness and dense fog of fanaticism fell upon our families, it still took our breath away. We felt the full weight and sheer horror of losing our country in real time to a Republican-orchestrated judicial coup. In sweeping language, it often reads more like a manifesto from a demented ideologue. The Supreme Court bull-rushed unpopular nation-altering rulings that ended the right to abortion, expanded access of concealed weapons in cities, funneled taxpayer money to support favored religious schools, and greenlit public school officials engaging in coercive and showy displays of worship. The final putrid puzzle piece for the fracturing of America is former twice-impeached President Donald Trump. His primary role in this drama 
is using his venomous personality and malignant magnetism to gaslight and inspire society's worst elements to express their racist rage, homophobic hate, and misogynistic madness. The result has been years of unrelenting, vicious partisan warfare, inflammatory culture wars, the busting of norms, and widespread corruption that has intentionally incinerated any shard of remaining national unity. We have reached a tragic point where it's difficult with a straight face to call our country the United States of America. And the venom is only worsening in the aftermath of the Dobbs abortion ruling. At a Saturday Donald Trump rally, Representative Mary Miller said, quote, President Trump, on behalf of all the MAGA patriots in America, I want to thank you for the historic victory for white life in the Supreme Court yesterday. Yeah, white life. The enraptured audience cheered with approval when she said this. They didn't think twice about it. Lest one give Miller a pass for her racism, she once praised Hitler for saying, whoever has the youth has the future. Yeah, that's a great role model, isn't it, Hitler? <laughs> but that's where we're at, folks. It turns out that the retrograde forces of my youth that were in retreat as I matured have never fully disappeared. The characters oozing out of the muck are as recognizable as they are repugnant. I remember their ilk well from my teenage years in suburban Texas. These irascible rubes have returned, many with weapons of war, to drag our country backwards. They want to limit the options of women, disappear LGBTQ people, and put minorities in their place. Just as they did every single day when I was growing up. As the forward-looking majority celebrated pride year after year and cheered on progress, these primitive, backward barbarians seethed in the shadows and organized in the woodwork, waiting for their glorious return to prominence and power. To paraphrase Donald Trump, they patiently stood back and stood by until their day of delirium arrived. Well, that dark moment is now upon us. And unless this ill wind is rolled back, the clock will be turned back. What gives me a sense of hope is that Republicans resorted to theft of our political system and outright violence because we rejected the poison they were peddling. We don't want it. We don't want what they're selling. And they know it. They have not beaten us fair and square, nor have they secured a mandate for their monstrous agenda. These scoundrels and serpents lied and swindled their way into power. They are a loud, morally bereft minority willing to push America asunder to bully their way to full totalitarian control. We cannot let our fear or our disappointment drive us to despair. It is crucial that we never forget that we are the majority and if we fight together, we are mightier than our foes. As we stand at the crossroads in American history, we must fully commit to dislodging this ignorant, primitive, invasive species which is alien to modernity, allergic to democracy, and at war with the Enlightenment. They are against art, literature, civil rights, science, free thinking, diversity, political freedom, religious pluralism, and basic morality. They are anathema to everything that we hold dear. We have no choice but to awaken from our long slumber and prepare for the slugfest that will determine the rest of our lives and the future of civilization.
Now we're going to break down the January 6th hearing today on Capitol Hill. And what we learned was eye-popping. A stunning portrait was painted of Trump's toxic presidency, his unrestrained criminality, a reprobate personality, and an unambiguous attempt to stage a coup and overthrow the United States of America. Any other portrayal of what happened today would be inaccurate. It's as bad as what I'm saying, if not worse. It's difficult to decide what the biggest headline is from the hearing today. I mean, they dropped more bombshells than the Russian army today. The surprise witness on the stand was Cassidy Hutchinson. She's a former aide of Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's final chief of staff. Hutchinson is important because she was in the room while key decisions were being made before, during, and after January 6th. She knew where the skeletons were buried and took us on a grand tour of a moral graveyard known as the Trump presidency. Testifying on Trump's behavior, Hutchinson bluntly said, quote, as an American, I was disgusted. It was unpatriotic. It was un-American. We were watching the Capitol building get defaced over a lie. It doesn't get much more direct and damning than that, does it? This isn't a Democrat or an anti-Trump Republican. This was someone at the heart of Trump's administration. Hutchinson was someone who had admired Trump enough to work for him. She got up every single day trying to forward Trump's objectives and agenda. Trump and his goons are going to try to discredit her. It's not going to work. It's going to be difficult because Hutchinson has enormous credibility. She remained calm and collected as she testified. She came across as professional and stuck to the damning facts. And these facts were devastating. First, Trump knew that many of the thugs who attended his rally on the Ellipse were heavily armed and ready for battle. These insurrectionists, they came equipped with knives, guns, bear spray, body armor, spears, and flagpoles. Trump responded to this threat by demanding that the magnetic metal detectors, known as mags, be disabled. I mean, really, think about that for a moment. He wanted these hooligans to roam freely with their war weapons, including deadly AR-15s. Hutchinson reported Trump's stunning reaction to the armed men. Trump said, quote, you know, I don't fucking care if they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the fucking mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the fucking mags away. Donald Trump only cared about his own safety. Nobody else mattered. He only cared about furthering his power and remaining president. Nobody else mattered. Think about the enormity of this revelation. The President of the United States whipped up a rabid mob to violently stop the transfer of presidential power. If this isn't a full-blown coup, I don't know what is. There is only one way this sickening saga ends with justice, and that's Donald Trump walking away in handcuffs. Nothing else will suffice or end the ongoing national nightmare. The second revelation from today. Donald Trump blamed Mike Pence for foiling his coup and wanted his vice president murdered. Strong word, but it's true. As rioters stormed the Capitol, chanting, hang Mike Pence, Hutchinson testified that her boss, Mark Meadows, said of Trump, quote, he doesn't want to do anything, and he thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Again, let that sink in. An armed mob is yelling, hang Mike Pence. They're looking for Mike Pence. They've erected the gallows. And the president doesn't think there's anything wrong with that. This was hardcore criminality in action. 
Donald Trump was acting like a mob boss, hoping to whack an underling that he felt betrayed him. I don't think there's another way to view this. It's pretty clear cut to me. The third revelation at the hearing today, the White House had prior knowledge that violence could erupt on January 6th, but chose to do nothing to stop it. Hutchinson testified that Meadows was concerned as early as January 2nd that Trump's rally could spin out of control, telling her, quote, things might get real, real bad on January 6th. Well, I guess that makes him a, a clairvoyant. It makes him a genie because that prediction certainly came true. You know, in spite of these warnings, and there were many warnings, not just Mark Meadows, Trump and his lackeys decided to fan the flames of discontent and chose to continue riling up their base. Trump wanted his most violent and unstable followers to be whipped into a frenzy on January 6th. And so they were. Fourth revelation, Donald Trump physically grabbed the steering wheel inside his Secret Service car when the driver refused to escort Trump to the United States Capitol to join the insurrectionists while the insurrection was going on while it was in progress. This is a twisted man who wanted to lead the charge in person to steal an election. Trump was at the center of the coup, not on the periphery. He must pay the consequences and the price for what he did. Fifth revelation is that Trump is unhinged and unmoored from reality. When the president learned that his former attorney general, Bill Barr, had publicly said that Trump lost the election, Trump violently banged the table and threw dishes. Apparently, this disturbing temper tantrum was not unique. President Trump had smashed dishes before in uncontrolled fits of rage. Is this presidential behavior? This man needs serious help. He's not well. The final revelation from today's hearing Hutchinson said both Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani communicated interest in receiving presidential pardons after the failed January 6th coup attempt. This means they knew they were guilty and they deserved to be in prison. So they preemptively tried to shield themselves from the guilt and crimes against America. I mean, how much worse can this get? How much worse? A profoundly disturbed madman is in the White House. And he gathers co-conspirators, directing a violent armed coup to overthrow democracy and even kill his vice president. Donald Trump is an unambiguous threat to the safety of millions of Americans. He's a menace to society. Donald Trump should be handcuffed, taken off the street and put in prison for the rest of his life. As long as Donald Trump walks free, our freedom is in jeopardy. We will end today's podcast with some encouraging news for a change. A, a Polish appeals court ruled that so-called LGBT-free zones must be scrapped in four municipalities. Across Poland, hardcore conservatives thought they had the right to eliminate and ban LGBT people from their cities and towns. Is there a more outright fascist action that you can think of than LGBT-free zones? I mean, the idea that you could actually ban LGBT people is bizarre. It would never work. I mean, we're everywhere. But they thought they could, and they tried. It's really a form of segregation, if you think about it. It's a long line of bigotry. We saw this in the United States with Jim Crow telling people you had to drink out of a certain water fountain, or you had to sit in the back of the bus. Uh, Jews in the United States couldn't rent in many places. They had signs, no Jews or dogs can rent here. 
And now we're seeing this garbage in Poland, trying to ban LGBT people from municipalities. Crazy. I don't want to be mean, but these are profoundly ignorant people. And beginning in 2019, several right-wing localities in Poland passed these uh, resolutions, declaring themselves free of LGBT ideology. But LGBT is what people are. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a life. It's not an ideology. You can't make somebody gay or lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. That's a myth. You know what is an ideology, though? The bigoted, backward religious nuttery that led to these abusive authoritarian laws in Poland. They try to mask their hate as traditional values. What they are really peddling are valueless traditions that help nobody and harm a lot of people. You know, if you want to be a far-right Catholic, go to church and lead a good life. That's your business. I'm okay with that. But that doesn't mean you get to trample on the rights of others and force them to live by your anachronistic religious beliefs. I began the show today talking about fascists in the United States trying to overthrow the country. I ended it by highlighting fascists in Poland. This arrogant, power-hungry, lunatic fringe is a worldwide curse, and defeating their ilk is going to require a global solution. I don't give a damn what your country's problems are. I don't care how tough things are. Lurching to the extreme right and embracing fascism and authoritarianism is never the solution, and it will always end in disaster. I don't want to hear excuses why people embrace tyranny and elect leaders who trample on basic human rights. It is never acceptable. But thankfully, we succeeded in Poland today. We, we pushed back the agents of intolerance who tried to legislate so-called LGBT free zones. This is a big victory and we should celebrate, especially during Pride Month. This is your host, Wayne Besson. Thank you for listening to War of the Words. We're available on all major platforms, such as Apple, Spotify, and Anchor. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Until we meet again, see you next time.